0: Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is God's word. All right, if you guys would pray with me one last time, and we'll, uh, we'll get started. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather this Sunday. Lord, we recognize the significance of this topic as it is relevant to all of us. It's relevant to the world around us. It's relevant to our families, our workplaces, every circle that we exist in. This kind of thing, conflict, uh, feeling of being wronged, hurt, reconciliation is relevant. So please help us, Lord. Uh, Just speak and help us to listen and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I want to provide... Uh, an early disclaimer as we get started. And I uh, do this every now and again, every blue moon, to say that, uh, you know, we're talking about this idea of reconciliation. And there's, I don't know, more than enough people in front of me right now to have dozens and dozens of experiences with hurt and conflict and things like that. So I just want to say, as, as Andy and I are kind of working through this idea of what does it look like to be reconciled, and as you're starting to kind of process not just our ideas, but Christ's example— I want to really encourage you guys that as you're thinking through that, that you don't just act recklessly, because there are we, we try to be as nuanced as we can from behind this pulpit, but we can't be as nuanced as your guys' lives are guaranteed to be. And, you know, I'm thinking of some random example of someone being like, wow, I heard this great sermon on reconciliation, so I've got this horribly abusive relationship, and I'm going to call him up tonight because I feel like that's what Jesus is calling me to. I think I'd be like, okay, hold on, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's talk through that a little bit because it might be a little more complex. So I only say all of this to say, please, Andy and I, the other leaders, we would love to be involved in conversations as you think of how to apply this stuff. Um, we just know that this is this is sensitive and we don't want to be careless. So there's my little disclaimer. Being reconciled. You know, if you had asked me about this as a sermon topic like 10 years ago in my, you know, little angsty baby Christian face, I would have said, what a terrible. Series to go through, like it sounds a little bit like uh, like a human resources seminar. Like, oh, this is uh, it's about being reconciled in conflict. It's like, okay, well, we can we can get that at work. Do we have to get that at church? Sounds like a series of YouTube videos that I could watch. It doesn't it doesn't feel relevant to us. But if we're being honest, it's, it's completely relevant. In fact, I think it's inescapable in the place that we find ourselves as human beings. When we look at the Bible, this story that unpacks not just the story of God, but the story of men and women, one of the first stories we see after people kind of start going down this downward tumble is two brothers murdering each other, this story of conflict it's everywhere. And we can't even joke as if, oh, well, you know, everyone's got that one friend who they don't talk to anymore, but it's mostly harmless. It's not. We know it's not harmless. Like, ask, ask a kid who grew up having to go, uh, having to split their weekends between their mother and their father and ask them if conflict is harmless Ask someone who had to witness a really terrible split right down the middle in the church that they'd been attending for a very, very long time. Ask that person if conflict is irrelevant. Conflict is painfully relevant. It's not just relevant, it's necessary. We have to talk about this. Reconciliation is this idea that's stitched within the very fabric of the gospel. It's literally about God coming to save not just people who didn't know about him, but his enemies. The heart of our faith is soaked in reconciliation. And Jesus is calling us to love as we've been loved, and that means when it's tough. I'm uh, probably going to share a couple of personal anecdotes today. Um, I can just start by saying that I don't know anything about conflict resolution. You guys thought that when I talked about uh, sharing, the, sharing the faith, and I, and I confess to you guys about not having a successful career with that, I, I think I've got this one beat. <laughs> conflict resolution is not my jam. Because conflict's not my jam. I would much rather act as though it's not there, save face, save time, save the struggle. It's not my natural thing. But unfortunately, not only does this sermon series force me to talk about it, it forces me to act on it and face that fear. I've talked about this a couple times before, but my parents have very different philosophies on conflict, but both of them are equally as unhealthy. My dad's side of the family, they're, they're, they're communal. They, 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 they'll use this phrase, but we're family constantly. So they'll never excuse someone who skips out on a family reunion, doesn't go to a wedding, doesn't go to a funeral. But as a result, these conflicts, when they happen, they're always huge and they erupt and there's secrets. Secrecy is such a poison in that half of the family because we don't know how to deal with the conflict when it comes to the surface, so we keep it as under the surface as possible, pretending it's not there, knowing it is. My mom's side is the exact opposite. They just distance themselves from everyone. My mom will go years and years at a time without talking to relatives because there was the slightest issue, and they just won't talk about it. I've got uncles that I've met like once, My mom won't even remember some of the conflicts that she's had with her relatives, but she knows there was a good enough reason that we haven't spoken in 10, 12, 14 years. You know, like, I can say from personal experience that this inability to address conflict in a healthy way, in a way that Christ has given to us, has impacted my life. My parents got divorced. I have siblings that... I don't talk to or more don't talk to me. I didn't get much of a glimpse of this, but we're going to work through it together. So let's define this real quick. Let's define our terms. This is uh, I'm just going I'm going to try to be really really brief with this. Uh, I'm going to define this idea of reconciliation or or resolving conflict, making things good where it's currently not. I think there's four ingredients to it and I'm going to keep it really simple like I said. Confession. You admit the thing that you did that was wrong. I am sorry that I said blank. I am sorry that I did blank. Confession. Repentance. I said blank, and I am going to try to not do it anymore because that was wrong. Forgiveness. You said blank to me, and even though it hurt me, I forgive you, and I'm not going to hold it against you anymore, or at least I'm going to try. And then the last one, which I think sometimes is the most challenging, is Restoration. Now that we've confessed our sins, we've repented, and we've forgiven each other, we're going to work to rebuild the trust and the relationship that was lost. Scripture doesn't say that conflict would be avoided, but simply that it could be redeemed. This is where we find ourselves in this passage from Matthew 18 that Andy read out for us. You know, it's often considered the church discipline passage, which I think is misleading. In this passage, the background of it is, you know, we have Jesus, son of God, central figure of the Christian faith. He's speaking with some of his closest friends. He explains to them kind of this procedure of what to do when people sin against each other, when one person sins against you. He says, at first, talk to him person to person. Just bring it up. Hey, I. uh, this is awkward, but... The other day when we were talking, you, uh, you said this, and it actually really hurt me, and I, I just really, I didn't, I didn't like that very much. Hopefully, ends right there. I am so sorry. I care about you. I don't want to do that. Uh, it, it means a lot that you brought this up to my attention. A little dap, a little fist bump, and we're good. Everything's good again. As Jesus gave a next step when that doesn't work? Then you bring a couple, a couple pals, a couple, a couple witnesses who can say, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, he he did say that, he did do that. He does need to need to be called out for it." The next step after that is let's bring the whole community together. Not as a witch hunt, not to banish this person, but we want to bring this person back to God. We want them to help them recognize that what they're doing is really harmful. It's not loving. It's not in the heart of Jesus that Jesus is giving to us. And then the very end is usually what people only remember about this passage, which again is very unfortunate, is that we should no longer treat this person as if he's a believer. We should treat them as if it says as if they were a Gentile or a tax collector. That doesn't mean that we uh, scratch their name out of our uh, phone books And act as if they never exist, it really just means that we shouldn't continue to act like they're a Christian and partake in things like the Lord's Supper because they're just doing damage to themselves. If they have stuck their heels into something wrong and are refusing to own up to it, they do need to be challenged. And that's not easy. The reason I have a little bit of an issue with people seeing this as a church discipline passage is because it, it, it makes it sound like this is the passage about people getting tossed out of the church. I'll be honest, when I read this passage, even knowing that Jesus himself gave it to his friends, it makes me tense up a little bit because I immediately think of all the potential abuses that can happen in this. I just think of the, you know, the, the, the stiff church leaders who look at this passage and they say, that's how we're going to get Gladys out for recommending new carpet in the foyer, you know. But the message of this passage is not about banishing people or creating outcasts. Jesus is actually introducing his disciples to an idea not of creating outsiders, but of navigating conflict in a way that leads to restoration and healing. So how does that move us? I'll say this, I I think we've been living in the shadow of unredeemed conflict for a long time. I know that I'm not alone in this room of people who feel fear when it comes to difficult conflict. I know I'm not alone in this room when I say that I was discipled by people and family who taught me all the wrong ways to resolve tension and issues. We've been living here for a long time And Jesus is showing us not that we can cast out all of our least favorite people, but that we can actually redeem what was lost. But we have to believe it. And I, I, we're, we're going to talk about this for five weeks. We can, we can give you guys a lot of practical uh, conflict resolution tips for five weeks. But instead of doing that, instead of even getting into the nitty gritty of what it looks like to be reconciled, My only goal tonight is to make you or encourage you to believe again. To believe that there's a hope of being reconciled that's worth thinking of. I would suggest that the reason that Jesus' words don't really move us when we think of a good way to resolve beef with each other there's only so many ways you can say conflict, <laughs> is, is because we're afraid. I think it's because we're afraid. And I'm not saying that to shame anyone, I'm afraid too. But I think we are. And you say in response, John, I'm not afraid. I'm angry. I'm angry for this, at this person for what they've done and what they continue to do. And you say, John, I'm not afraid. I don't even care. I'm indifferent. I can't be phased because this person has just completely replaced my heart with scar tissue. They can't move me anymore, John. And I'm sure if you're telling me right now in your heart that you're angry, I'm sure that you're angry. If you're telling me in your heart right now that you're indifferent, I'm positive that you're indifferent. But I think when you look down deeply into your own heart, that there's something that you really want to avoid. And I think that's something, if we're being honest with each other, brings you fear. What if I try to resolve things once and for all and they don't forgive me? What's that going to say about me? What if I speak to them about the ways they've hurt me and they don't care? They just shrug me off, leaving me even more hurt than I was before. What if we do this and it works? And then more problems come up and we do it again. And we go through this process again and again, just confessing and forgiving and things never really change. All these what ifs. So instead of hope, instead of courage, we find ourselves in fear and we hide from the old ghosts that have haunted us forever. So like I said, before we get into the nitty gritty about conflict, we need to hope again. We need to believe there's something to it, that this Jesus guy wasn't just some pie-in-the-sky optimist. We need to have hope that a community of people saved by Jesus could hope for a better way to live, a way to live that looks like healing, that looks like forgiveness, that looks like redemption. So what's our hope? I've got three points. One. God has tamed the unknown. This is the this is fun point. This is the point that hopefully brings you back because I, I think that you're probably very suspicious of me right now, which I understand. This one's fun. This one's accessible for everybody. This is really just about fear in general. This is one of my favorite fun facts about the Bible. It's so interesting to me. If you read the Bible and there's random little passages in like mostly the Psalms and then a couple of the prophets that talk about God fighting sea monsters, Craziest thing. It's so compelling to read that. Because you just get this image that there was at one point where God in the, the the cosmos was having this like Godzilla versus Mothra type battle with a giant sea monster. And that's really interesting to think about. Now, my my explanation for that is probably a little bit less interesting because I don't think there was a literal Godzilla versus Mothra type battle. But the understanding comes in understanding the ancient world, the people who were writing the scriptures. These people had a deep fear of chaos, of the unknown, of the disorderly. And you gotta think, this is thousands of years back removed from all of the technologies and medical advancements and ease and infrastructure that we come to appreciate today. So for them, like a cough might mean you're dead in two weeks. For them, like a bad storm might mean your, your livelihood is ruined. They were very, very vulnerable to the uh, uncertainty of life and they represented this idea of chaos as the waters as these unruly seas that were violent and unpredictable so when they talked about god being this like battle warrior who's you know pe- putting the people's elbow on sea monsters what he's saying is god is in control of all that we see as chaotic, everything that brings us fear, everything that would bring us to tremble, God has called order to. And that is what makes this story about Jesus on the boat so much more interesting. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping. In the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, the disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus is unbothered. He's able to end it with a single word. There's a beautiful, literal, and symbolic meaning to this story. On one hand, Jesus is literally that guy. He has full power and control over the cosmos. He doesn't need to strain himself to make all creation bow to him. On the other hand, the waters represent this terrible, fearful, unknown that the people of this time were traumatized by, yet Jesus, the Son of God, was unfazed. Just like the men and women of times past, we fear the dangers and the uncertainty and the potential violence of the world around us. Of the unknown. We're we're frightened of going into places where we risk ourselves. And so we try to protect and defend as best as we can. Yet to God, the unknown is known, the chaos is in perfect order. If we want to believe in the reconciliation and the restoration of relationships, we have to believe that Jesus has conquered the mystery of what we fear. Jesus isn't in the dark like we are. Jesus is actually leading us into it because he himself is light. We have to be willing to follow him into that. Whether it's embarrassment or vulnerability or emotional pain, Jesus stands over all of it. And he's calling us in with him. Speaking of trying hard to defend ourselves. Here's my second point. God is a great defender. God is a great defender. This one for me is honestly very difficult to imagine. I've realized, honestly, for a few months now, quite a bit in the past uh, few days, that I have a very, very strong uh, defensive posture. And honestly, I would have told you six months ago, it was a good thing. If people, you know, the, the example I used before was, you know, if somebody was like, yeah, Pastor John from Mission Church, I heard that guy preaches out of the Book of Mormon, you know, And if I hear that, I'm just like, okay, hold on a second. Here Here is every single note I wrote about that sermon. You wanna, like I can, I'll control F for you. There is no reference to the Book of Mormon. I've never taught from that in my life. I would never do something like that. And I think I'm doing myself such a good service right now. I'm making sure everyone knows that I'm very capable of defending myself. And honestly, there's, Probably some part of my, of my story. I mean, not, not even probably, almost certainly. There are times in my life when I was young and I felt, and I was going through difficult times and I felt like I had no one there to support me and no one there to defend me. So now I have this reflex that tells me that I have to scrape and claw and fight and bite to make sure that I'm taken care of, but more so that I'm taking care of myself. It's not anger, it's fear. It's a lot of fear. When Jesus was being tried before his execution, this amazing thing happened. The God of the universe was being tried by people he made. It might as well have been a court of ants and grasshoppers Judging on whether the creator of the universe was a good guy or not. They accuse him of lies. They say terrible things about him. They hurt him. Jesus, the king of kings, he he could have struck dead the people that talked down to him. He could have embarrassed the judges. He could have stopped the hands of those who beat him. At the very least, he could have defended himself. He could have said, you guys are wrong. Imagine the logic this man could have used to defend those who were saying what they were saying about him. Imagine how silly he could have made them look without even trying. And Jesus said nothing. He didn't say a word. Why not, Jesus? Defend yourself, man. Say what you got to say. Don't let them do this to you. That's how I feel. That's what I want to say. Jesus, what are you doing? But he just stayed stone cold silent. And I'd like to believe that as Jesus' body was being torn apart, and as he was experiencing the emotional pain of his friends who just hightailed it out of there when he needed him the most, I can only hope that in his mind were the words that he gave to someone hundreds of years ago from the 18th Psalm I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise. He saved me from my enemies. At the heart of conflict, there's this this devouring temptation that comes up to save ourselves, to preserve whatever we need to preserve from the other person. And so we go into fight or flight mode. We either crush the person who's bringing us into a place we don't wanna go, or we bounce. We're literally either Jesus' friends who abandoned him or Jesus' enemies who wound him. We leave or we fight, but neither of those is right, and neither of those is what Jesus did. Defensive people like myself will struggle to settle for any version of reconciliation that doesn't prioritize their own well-being. And unfortunately, the nature of Christian love is to be the giving of self, not protecting of self. Why? Because he's our rock, our fortress, our shield, our protector, our high tower. We don't have to defend ourselves anymore. And I'll say this, because the reality of my confession is all too honest. Everyone in this room who hears this, even you guys on the live stream, wherever you are, probably in the Philippines somewhere, okay, thanks for being here, I give you all full permission at a point in time where you feel like, you know, my blood pressure is going up and I'm using my hands to animate and I'm getting a little bit eccentric to say, John, You don't have to defend yourself. Free pass. I need it. Here's my last point. God is our great hope. God is our great hope. In this day and age, it's not uncommon to hear discussions of things like generational sins. We even see things like this in the Bible. Violent people have violent kids. Dishonest people have dishonest kids. We see our parents. We see our communities. We see lots of chains that we don't think are possible to break. Because we see the blood that runs in our veins. We know what's in our DNA. We see what we've seen. We know what we've known. But when Jesus was being tried for a crime that he didn't commit, he wasn't just flexing as the perfect human by saying nothing. He was reaching his hands to a world of broken, traumatized, defenseless, hopeless people. He was reaching out to call them home into a place where they can be safe and cared for. He was doing this out of love, a perfect love, a love that prioritized our well-being, and not his own, a love that compelled him to suffer, a love that compelled him to stay quiet when his name was being dragged through the mud. Jesus isn't just good at reconciliation. Jesus is at the very heart of reconciliation. And here's great news for everyone here if we are children of God, if we have a mustard seed of faith, if we believe even when it's hard to believe or we come back to believe after we doubt for a long time, here's the good news. We're new creations. And we're more new today than we were yesterday. We have holy, divine blood in our veins, the blood of the Savior. Our DNA glows with the glorious light of God. So don't drown in the misery of despair that you don't have anymore. Don't lament a condition that you've been delivered from. There is hope that can break the chains that our peers and our parents and our culture did not break. If we return to the passage from today that Andy read for us, we see that Jesus is with those witnesses who gather together to bring healing to the community of God. We are not alone. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's this beautiful thing. I mean, Andy talked about this last week when we were going through Matthew 28. Jesus is sending his people out. He's giving them a mission of reconciling and healing and bringing beauty to a place where there was none. But he's not sending them alone. He's saying, I'm sending you out, but I'm with you no matter what. If there's a remedy that exists for fear, if there's a remedy that exists for the fear of that darkness that we don't want to tread into, it has to be that we don't go alone. So in the coming weeks, We'll get more practical. We'll talk about reconciliation from different angles. That'll all be really good, I'm sure. But for today, please have hope. Don't be afraid. God is with us. Pray with me, please. Lord, I thank you for hope. I thank you for Um, hope again. I thank you that uh, you've given us something better that we can see political conflict that's tearing our country apart. We're seeing ideological conflict and cultural conflict. We see parents who don't talk to kids. We see parents who don't talk to parents. I used to think that because all my friends were Christians that none of them were ever going to have these hard times come and I was wrong. Conflict has deep roots in a lot of us and it only bears wicked fruit. So Lord, I believe that there is hope for something better than this. I'm confident that there is, but it will require us to get our hands dirty and that itself is a challenge. But I know that you'll be with us and as you are with us, would you remind us that you are? And uh, would you give us the strength to follow you? Because we're, we're weak. We can't do this by ourselves. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.